Praise be to God. If you would, please turn again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This will be our primary passage today. Uh, this is going to be a topical. Again, this, uh, this message will talk about work, we will talk about the purpose of work, and a number of things. I hope it hits home, and I hope it's a discussion we can continue to have with the congregational meeting today and other things in the months ahead. Um, uh, amazing text, amazing text here. It's a very practical exhortation of Scripture. You know, we don't often hear pastors say, please turn to First or Second Thessalonians. They're, they're not the most celebrated books in, in Christendom, uh, yet they're immensely practical. Immensely practical, possibly that's the reason we don't go there a whole lot. Um, in fact, you know, we know all of Scripture is very practical. It's God-breathed. We're assured in 2 Timothy 3.16 that it makes men and women adequate, complete. The King James says, perfect. So it will be ready for every good work, equipped for every good work of God. And the Holy Scriptures do that. They equip us. They make us ready. They perfect us. And the Holy Spirit breathed out God's message through men who were chosen by God as apostles, as prophets. They wrote God's message down, the words that he wants us to know. And the Apostle Peter assured us in 2 Peter 1.21 that no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Right? Amen? And we breathe in God's Word. We inhale God's Word. The indwelling Holy Spirit teaches us how to behave, how to act more like Christ. So biblical Christianity is is very practical. Can we agree on that? It is, it is. And and quite often people come to me and they say that which I preached on a particular Sunday uh, either complimented or further explained what Jerry Robertson had just taught in the Bible Life Group. Uh, Or they'll say that Ruth Buchanan provided further application on Wednesday night in women's discipleship. And it's the same with with Pastor Weiler and the youth group and, and, and everywhere we teach the, the Word of God, it seems like it's a result of good planning because it all comes together. Well, it is good planning. It is God's planning. He plans Scripture to function that way. All the harmony, all credit for harmony goes to God because Scripture interprets Scripture. The Word of God explains itself. So it doesn't matter whether it's Anthony Alberino teaching Genesis on Wednesday night, which he'll be going into chapter 4 this Wednesday for the men. It doesn't matter if it's children's ministries. Whatever the venue is, as long as we're faithfully teaching God's Word, accurately teaching what God intended to say, the Bible will dovetail in and explain itself. It will complement itself. So I encourage you, uh, this day of our congregational meeting We're coming together for the fellowship dinner. Take advantage of all the opportunities you can to be taught the Word of God in these group studies. Uh, Reading Scripture at home, very important. Learning in community, even more important. The community of God. And, And we come together, it helps prevent confusion or doctrinal error. That's why Hebrews tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because in the church settings where the equipping of the saints occurs, according to Ephesians 4.11. So please consider those other opportunities to learn. Today we're going to discuss a couple very practical 
reasons we are here as a church. Reasons we are Christians. And uh, we're here to do good. We're here to work hard. To labor. And doing good actually happens to be where Pastor Weiler left off last week. Dovetailing again, not by design of our own. But let me read to you those two final verses that he gave you from Galatians chapter 6. They're verses 9 and 10. Paul writes this, Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. And get this, it says, And especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are to emphasize, prioritize in a sense, doing good to other Christians. People of the faith. Scripture refers to them as our beloved brethren. The Apostle John actually linked the genuineness of our salvation to the genuineness of our love and concern for the Christian brethren, saying in 1 John 3.14, By this we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. John illustrates that love a couple verses later, saying, Whoever among you has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? John implies it doesn't. And then our Lord's brother James, he likewise tells us in his letter, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? All of these exhortations that we read, they're in the context of Christian brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're all united by the same indwelling Holy Spirit. We naturally, actually I would say, we supernaturally possess an extraordinary affection towards other Christians. An extraordinary affection. And, and, and this is, is visualized, it's, it, there's a picture of it given in Matthew chapter 25. This is perhaps my favorite chapter in Scripture. And Jesus provides a picture It's the final judgment where he's separating the sheep from the goats. And the goats are to his left, the sheep are to his right, and to his beloved sheep. Jesus says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And when Jesus said, I was in prison, he's referring specifically to Christians imprisoned for their faith. You know, Christian imprisonment wasn't a rare thing in that day. Did you know that Christian imprisonment is not a rare thing today? Jesus says, you weren't ashamed of my imprisonment, of my nakedness. You came to me. And the naive sheep that had served, they said, Lord, when did we do all these things? They weren't keeping track. In a record book, Jesus replies in verse 40 of Matthew 25, saying, To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, 
even to the least of them, the lowest, you did it to me. And of course, it is Jesus uh, to whom we do these things. It was him we, we clothe. It was him we medicate. Him we visit in prison. All Christians are members of his spiritual body. And we love him, so we love his body. I have a photo here before we continue. This is from the, uh, a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. And you might be familiar with that, a very reputable ministry. Uh, they work in closed countries and persecuted countries. These are genuine Christians imprisoned for their faith, for Christianity. This happens today. There are many of them across the globe that are being pers- persecuted. I have a short video, and I don't often do this. This might be the first time I've played a video during a message. It is short. Uh, The Voice of the Martyrs has a ministry in Pakistan, Iraq, Sudan right now. They're concentrating on for the most impoverished of Christians. And, and And they say on their website, these are things that we give to Christians, the brethren. And I'm sure they minister as well. We'll talk about that to to others. But look at some of the reactions that they get. You could hear them during part of that saying, Godspeed in English. Godspeed. Wonderful things going on out there for Jesus Christ. Clothing the naked, taking care of them. It's just one small sample of what can be done when the resources are there. You know, Scripture repeatedly places a special emphasis. You can read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. talks a lot about giving there. But there's a special em- emphasis on the relief of impoverished Christians. Impoverished churches. The body of Christ. And, and of course, we go about our lives. We do good. We do good to all men. We'll encounter unbelievers that need help as well, no doubt. We will respond as the Good Samaritan did. We should remind ourselves at the same time, and as we look at our text today, the Good Samaritan who gets referenced a lot stumbled across an obvious need of a stranger. He didn't have to guess whether or not that individual had need. So the Good Samaritan wasn't a model of indiscriminate giving, as we'll see today. But regular planned giving, biblical giving, prioritizes the brethren the saints in Jerusalem, Paul said, will take a collection on the first of every week in 1 Corinthians 16 for those who didn't have in the church in Jerusalem. And we're given latitude to assist legitimate needs as we see them regardless of who they are. During the process of giving, we're reminded by Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in it. Just because there might be some people that abuse the system... Don't grow weary in doing good. We do must do good to others. You know, all, all the, the contexts of these passages I've read to you are of material nature. Food, clothing, medicine, taking care of people. And that's why we'll discover today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, our primary passage, that in order to do good, there's a couple criteria that we need to meet. Couple criteria first. Number one, in order to do good or share, you first have to have your own resources. I know that's that's deep. That's deep. 
how do you share unless you first have worked hard enough to earn? You can't. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, Paul asserts this. He says, He who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, performing work with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Is that a purpose statement for work right there? For those who have need. And honest labor, it's a prerequisite for behaving appropriately towards those who are in need. You probably won't believe this, but there were at least a few in Thessalonica who had taken a negative posture, a negative disposition towards work. They didn't want to work. It's been suggested that perhaps they anticipated a real quick return of Christ was the reason they weren't working. It's been suggested by some that, that you can blame it on the Greek society, which really uh, emphasized philosophers and, and, and idolized them. And, and it really kind of demeaned manual labor. Possibly that had some influence. But that's not what the textual evidence tells us. We don't find that as the reason. Do you know what we do find as the reason that people won't work. The reason people won't work is rebellion against God and against His Word. You might say, well, do you have textual evidence of that? Yeah, I do. Turn with me back just a few pages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just a couple pages. Keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians 3. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes to them, this church in Thessalonica, and says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Now think just a moment. How did Thessalonica initially practice this love towards the brethren. How was that shown? Well, in, in chapter 1 of that same letter, verses 6 through 8, it tells us that Thessalonica became an example. Became an example to, to receiving the Word of God. Even amongst tribulation, we see in Acts chapter 17. They received the Word in tribulation. And we're told that the Word of God sounded forth from them regardless. They didn't mind the tribulation. As we teach at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, the love of God is always first and foremost demonstrated through the Gospel. Through telling people that there is a path of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Number one, you have to be saved from your sins. No amount of food or water will save you. You have to be saved from your sins. So the Word of God is paramount. Proselytizing is always necessary. That is, inviting people to trust in Christ. And Thessalonica had been faithful in these throughout the region of Macedonia, we're told in chapter 1. But the preaching of the Word of God does not express all, uh, doesn't exhaust all expressions of God's love. Paul adds to that in chapter 4, verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, to excel, excel still more. Excel more. Preaching the gospel is essential. Christians are commanded to excel beyond that. 
Paul instructs these Thessalonian believers how to do so in verse 11. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. You excel, according to Paul, not by minding other people's business, First, by attending your own business. Notice in verse 11, this isn't a suggestion. He said, I command. I command you. This is a Greek word that's very strong. It is often used with a tone of intimidation as a military command. We talked about it in 1 Timothy. So this is a command here Paul's giving. It's not only used here, by the way it's used, the same word, three times in our passage in 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul commands. He doesn't suggest. Before we can excel in the practical matters of giving, we are commanded, each of us, to get our own houses in order. How do we do that? The answer is very simple, very clear. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your own hands, provide for your own needs, Don't depend on outsiders. We financially get our own houses in order first. Number one, you can't help other people if you do not have your own house in order. How do we reconcile these with ideas of forced redistribution of wealth? You can't. The Bible can't be reconciled towards ideas of of socialism where we're going to take from you forcibly and give it to others. That's not the Spirit of God working. That's not how it works. Israel functioned as a theocracy. That means it was a religious government. You look, look there at Israel, people still owned their own property. They had their own businesses. They made their own money. Even in Proverbs 31, we've studied before the excellent woman. She rises early. She buys a field. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She makes linen garments. She makes belts. She sells them to the tradesmen in the marketplace. The Bible emphasizes hard work in a free market. That's a fact. You can't get around it. But there was a spirit of rebellion against God and the Word of God in Thessalonica, at least by a portion of the church. Not by all, but by a portion. And how do we know this? We know this because Paul found it necessary to repeat the same command a second time in his second letter to Thessalonica. This is what we discover in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in in our primary passage, verses 6 through 15. And I invite you to return there for the rest of our time. Look with me at verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, same word, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he invokes the name of Jesus in this. There hadn't been previous compliance to his command, so now he invokes the name of of Christ, saying that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. What tradition? Paul tells us in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example 
because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. That's the tradition. Working hard, not being a burden to others. And using himself as and his traveling companions who were with him at this time as examples, Paul simply restates what he said in the first epistle, the first Thessalonians. Attend to your own business, work with your hands, eat your own bread. They hadn't listened the first time around. And, and, and notice this first command here that we look at in verse 6. The first command is not to the ones uh, feasting on the bread of idleness. It's not written to them. The first command is directed towards behaving Christians. In verse 6, responsible Christians are, are told, commanded, to keep away, to avoid, to withdraw from every brother who doesn't follow Paul's example of industrious work. You are to withdraw from them. Why? We'll look at that. But think about it for a moment. What does this imply when Paul says, you are to avoid, you are to keep away, you are to withdraw from anyone who won't follow our example of hard work? That supplies our second criteria for doing good to others. Remember, number one, you have to have your own resources in order to share with those who are in need. Number two here, Paul more than suggests that Christians must, ex- must exercise intelligent discernment of those who are milking the system. That's what he's saying. Paul demands that we judge others. Wow. Did I just say that? Did Jesus just... Didn't, didn't Jesus just teach us that Christians should never judge? Matthew 7 is often, is often cited saying, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Actually, no. Jesus didn't teach that, that we should never judge. If you go and actually read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, if you actually read that, we discover that Jesus actually does not suggest we should never judge. What Jesus is teaching is that we should not judge hypocritically. And he says in that passage, by your standard, you will be measured. He says in that passage, get the log out of your own eye first, and then you can help the others. So applied in this context in in 2 Thessalonians, what Jesus would be saying is, he'd be warning against, is someone labeling another person a freeloader? while them themselves are a freeloader. That's what's condemned in Scripture. You don't judge others unless your own behavior will stand up to the same judgment. Christians are repeatedly commanded in Scripture, here's just one of the spots, to judge what is sinful, abstain from that which is ungodly and wicked. We're told to test the spirits to see whether they are from God or whether they're the spirit of the Antichrist. Here we are commanded to keep away from any undisciplined brother who is unwilling to work. 
The fact is, you and I are to judge, to discern all the time concerning benevolence. Does it merit the, the help that it needs? Uh, is, it, is it a legitimate need? Is it just horse hockey? We have a biblical responsibility, according to Paul, to at least attempt to verify what are and what are not legitimate needs. That's a biblical fact. You have to verify there's actually a need. That's what Scripture teaches. Work hard. Be very generous. Be discerning. Be discerning. Here, Paul toiled night and day. He paid for his own bread. Didn't burden anyone else. He was a hard worker. In verse 9, he even draws attention to the fact that he's an apostle. He has an apostolic ministry. He said, not that I didn't have the right to command you in this. And as an apostle, Paul could have required that they support his apostolic ministry. He had the authority as an apostle of Christ to do that. We Actually, we know from other letters that Paul did permit giving to his ministry from other cities but not from Thessalonica, not from this city. Certain members of this church needed to learn and heed the example of hard work so that they would have something to share. You know, Christ himself was a very hard worker. Did you realize that? He worked hard all the time. Sometimes the crowds grew so large that they pressed upon him and pushed on him. They exhausted him. They wearied him. And we see this this uh, example of, of persevering and hard, week, uh, hard work in John chapter 4. Jesus is tired from his journey. You know, he sat down by what, by what we know as Jacob's well. And the other disciples, they went into town to buy food. Jesus sits down. He hadn't had anything to eat, we're told. A woman comes up to him. A woman who needs ministering. You know, he could have just said, you know what, I'm really tired. I don't want to talk to this person. I don't want to reach out. I've been walking for a very long time. You don't see that in Scripture of Jesus. He hadn't had anything to eat, yet he ministered to her. He told her who he was. He revealed himself to her. She ended up running into town. And now the whole crowd comes out to him. He still hasn't had anything to eat. They convince him to stay there a couple more days with him. And when Jesus' disciples finally arrived with some food, telling him to eat something, Jesus responded, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. What was his food? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. God's work. You know, ministry can be exhausting. Jesus experienced that. But he wasn't lazy. Paul was not lazy. Paul's telling Thessalonica, you know, be imitators of me, just as I also am an imitator of Christ. And all, get this, able-bodied Christians must be willing to embrace hard work. All able-bodied Christians. We have to ask ourselves, do we look like Christ do we look like our Father in heaven? You know, He too provided us a pattern of work, our Father in heaven. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, in, in the creation account, we're told that the heavens and the earth were completed and all of their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. You know, when we go to this creation account as Christians, we almost exclusively emphasize the day of rest. We're drawn to that day of rest, and we say, you know what, that existed even before the fall, a day of rest. And that's true. And we're not going there today, that's a different passage and a different text. But what many fail to recognize in the creation account is the six days that God worked. He worked. This is also a pattern before the fall. You know, God didn't need rest. He's God. He didn't have to rest. He was providing us a pattern of work and rest. And God was suggesting even before the fall, even before sin entered the world, even before the curse entered, we'd work so hard for six days, we'd need a day of rest. It's a model of hard work, folks. It's a model of hard work. And it's a model continued by God, uh, or given again in, in, for Israel at Sinai, in Exodus 34, verse 21. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest time, you shall rest. And just like the Genesis account, in, in, in Genesis 2, that, two, that creation account, excuse me, Christians today read this, once again, immediately emphasizing that day of rest. We can have sermons all day long about the day of rest. But we completely ignore the fact that God says six days you shall labor. Isn't that interesting? Today some suggest labor should be optional. Somehow it's proposed that your idleness is spiritual. And now our nation has made work optional. This has been very devastating to our country, to the church, because we've adopted what the culture does. We always seem to have it creeping in on us. And we're told, you know, don't worry about finding work. Hang around. You can sit at home. We'll pay you indefinitely. Really. In just the past few years, you know, idleness has been promoted almost as some kind of Family strategy. We're told, you know, don't worry about being urgent to get out there. You can live in your mom's basement until you're 25. Skip your prime learning years, your prime earning years. You deserve all kinds of stuff for doing nothing. If you choose to wake up sometime in the forenoon, maybe we'll even buy college for you. Free college. How much do you value stuff that you don't work for, regardless what it is? Now we elevate idleness, joblessness. We tell people to postpone entering the workforce, take some time off, postpone life decisions, as if that's somehow dignified. How do you get that from Scripture? I don't understand that. 
And the result is, unfortunately, that we're cultivating a generation of of non-workers. People that don't want to work. And, And if we don't correct it, soon we're going to be harvesting a whole generation of non-production. Did you know that there was in Israel, still is, a ceremony? And it signifies when a boy becomes a man. It's called a bar mitzvah, right? Bar meaning son, mitzvah means of command. Or of law. Son of law, son of command. According to Jewish law, when boys turn 13 years old, they become accountable for their actions and they become a bar mitzvah. They become a son of the law. They're now responsible. They become, in a sense, a man. They become subject to the law themselves at 13. And by 13, they're expected to grow up. Or at least initiate the process of going up, growing up. By the way, at the same time, they have a bat mitzvah too, which would be son or daughter of the commandment. And until recently, I'm not going to say how long, until recently, that growing up has been a pretty typical expectation in America. Pretty typical. Fathers and mothers taught their sons and daughters to grow up and get to work. In fact, when I grew up on the farm, my mom's here today visiting. We talked about this a little bit. Young boys and young girls, they couldn't wait to get out and work. We wanted to get out of the sandbox, and we wanted to get into the tractor. Couldn't wait to get in the tractor and learn how to run it early in life. We wanted to farm. We wanted to design. We wanted to build stuff. We wanted to make things. We wanted to become a man. We wanted to get started. Knowing that that work is something that God created us to do. Even before the fall. We're to be workers. My personal story is that, that at 17 I began my first year in college. That didn't go so well, did it, Mom? That wasn't the best year. I could have spent the next year, eight years in my mom's basement. No, I couldn't. She, no way. That would not have happened. I had to restart. Didn't do so well in college. I went to trade school after that. Became an aircraft mechanic. And at 20 years old, I moved to Atlanta. Was working full-time for Delta Airlines on commercial aircraft earning a good salary, uh, full benefits. I got an early start. And in my generation, that story wasn't atypical. doesn't mean everybody did it that quickly, because some went to college and got smart. I didn't make it that direction. But that wasn't atypical. And when we look around our generation, I talked to Jerry Beasley this week. At 18, he was in the military, working, getting started right away. Um... Jerry Robertson, he was in Vietnam early. He came back. He, he learned a trade. He became a fireman. He kicked doors down. He saved people. He got an early start. Look at uh, um, Nathan. 
Well, he was in college in Clearwater. He was working too. He was, he was learning the, the, the franchise and, and how to work in the kitchen and how to, how to do these things while he's still in college, putting his way through college. Anthony became an engineer. You're a smart guy. Engineer. But we all began young, folks. We all began young. Not a unique story at all. Do you know what they refer to that in the Bible? That getting that early start? Harnessing the strength of your youth. Harnessing the strength of your youth. Proverbs 20.29 The glory of young men is their strength. The splendor of old men is their gray hair. What this basically means is the advantage a young man enjoys is his strength. The advantage the older man enjoys is wisdom from life's experiences. I'm going to give you a perfect illustration of how this works. You remember how everyone expected that on Super Sunday that Pastor Weiler's team that because he possessed this distinct advantage of youth and strength that somehow his team was going to win. While my reservation to wait until after the game to boast about the final score, that was the advantage of wisdom that comes with age. I thought that might be good for just one more laugh. It's good stuff. There's always next year. Folks, Youth provides a very distinct advantage. It's an advantage of physical strength for a few years until about 35, maybe 40. I see heads nodding. You have an advantage for a time. At that point, 35 to 40, most men and women start to feel their strength fade. you're lucky maybe a little longer pro athletes burn out that same age it will come and I'm going to say this for our youth this is really from the bottom of my heart Sam Jaden the girls too I I really mean this it comes to work you don't want to waste those 15 to 20 years don't waste it Don't spend it in your mom's basement. Work. Go to school. Learn. Work. Be industrious. Ladies, you're going to want to do some work. You're probably, many of you are going to want to raise a family. Time's going to come somewhere in your 40s, folks. Trust me. You're still going to have to work. But you'll want to at one point move up to fire chief. You're eventually going to want to be a shift supervisor and tell the young guys to climb into that place you don't fit well anymore. You're going to want to be a crew supervisor. You're going to want to manage your own restaurants. You're going to want the children out of the house. There were some in Thessalonica who had a different philosophy 
of idleness. It was laziness. It was lethargy. Um, So Paul, again, provides a strict command in verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, not willing, doesn't say not able, not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Persons who are unwilling to work, just rebellion against God, against what his word clearly says. That's unwilling again. It's taking advantage of neighbors. It's resisting God's righteous judgment of a curse. Genesis 3.17. We'll begin to wrap up with this. God declares to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you, because of sin. We've inherited this because of sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It's telling Adam. But thorns and thistles it shall grow. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of the face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground. You know what the sluggard declares back to God? No, I won't. I'm not going to toil. I'm not going to labor. I'm not going to sweat. I won't do it. It's an attitude of rebellion. For that reason, the Christian community responds, as Paul says in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, do not associate with them, so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So in the hope of redeeming this brother or sister, it says we attach a stigma. Wow. Person who's refusing to work used to carry a shame in our culture. The Bible says he or she still does. It's not to the point they get disfellowship from the church. That act of disfellowship in Matthew 18 Um, we consider that situation, those people, a Gentile or a tax collector. That's basically an enemy. That's not what this says. Here, they're not deemed an enemy, but a brother, but one who requires admonishing. Some would say that's not very compassionate. My response would be, it's not very compassionate permitting young people to squander the most productive years of their life because of idleness. Does that mean we stop doing good? We stop helping people? We stop working hard because some abuse the system? No. Verse 13 reminds us again, But as for you, brethren, do not weary of doing good. We don't let the abuse by a few discourage us from caring for legitimate needs. We just simply have to discern what is legitimate, what is not, what is a real hardship. And there are many people in the world, folks, many, many, who out of no controllable fault of their own are now suffering. There are people with mental conditions. There are people with debilitating illnesses. I've mentioned it multiple times. My brother-in-law who has MS... Hard worker for many years, can't work anymore. That's not what this is talking about. It's those who are unwilling. And there are elderly, there are orphaned, 
There are those who are left alone, have no reasonable way, no possible way to compare, uh, uh, to provide for themselves. And as we saw in that clip earlier, there are Christians that are living in societies that are so impoverished, there's, there's no way for them to care for themselves, to provide for their own selves. So there are those of us, Scripture says, who have the health, we have the ability, we have the economy to work hard so we have something to share with those who are in need. I can't think of a better reason to work hard. I can't. I can't think of a better reason to resist idleness than it takes away from those who are in need. We have the opportunity to help others. We need to help them. No wonder the scriptures are so firmly and repeatedly against the attitude of the sluggard. It's all over the Bible. 